Morning, church. How are y'all liking this heat this past week? Well, some people love it. I'm a like blizzard type of person, so there's nothing like this hot weather to show me that air conditioning has ruined me as a person. It gets over 85. I'm just wiped out, man. If you don't know me, my name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point, and we are currently in the series that we're calling Where is God When? And for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the life of this man named Elijah, and this morning we're going to pivot, and we're going to look at the life of another man in the Old Testament named David. And so you can turn in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to be starting at verse 4 if you have your Bibles with you. Now this man David, if you don't know who he is, if you're not familiar with him, David was the greatest king Israel ever had. He is responsible for writing most of the book of Psalms. He's referred to as a man after God's own heart twice in the Bible. He was this influential, powerful, wise, broken, foolish man. And we're going to look at his story and we're going to begin by examining his encounter with this giant named Goliath. And almost certainly you have heard this story or read this story or are familiar with this story in some way, shape, or form. And so before we even begin, I just want to challenge you, as we go into this, I want to challenge you to let go of your certainty that you know what this story is about. And instead, I'm going to ask you to just be open to whatever it is that God may reveal to you through his word today. And so the context for this story is there's been this ongoing conflict in the Old Testament between the people of Israel and the people of this nation called Philistia. And aside from the like just lifestyle and religious differences that, that cause this conflict, one of the biggest problems between Israel and Philistia is that God has promised Israel the land that Philistia is on. And these Philistines, they, they didn't get that memo. And so they're, just, they're in constant conflict because they're like, we don't care what your God said. You're not taking our land from us. You're not going to have this. And so they're in this constant conflict really throughout a lot of the Old Testament. And where we are in the story right now, both of these camps, Israel and Philistia, are, are, are camped across from each other in this valley called Elah. And there's been a 40-day, 40 40-night 40 standoff. And this is where we're going to pick up the scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting at verse 4. It says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. It's about 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Basically, what are you doing? You don't belong on this battlefield. You're not warriors. He says, I am a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
Now, I am a lover and not a fighter. But I went through a season of my life when I was younger where anger and pride frequently got the best of me. And if you mix that with the fact that I drank too much when I was younger, what you had was a kid who was always looking for a fight, always looking to prove how tough and how bad he was. And I'm not proud of that. That's just a part of my story. There's nothing impressive or honorable about it, but that was my reality for a little bit. And anytime you're in a headspace like that and like tensions get high and it seems like a fight might happen, the first thing you do is size up the person you're going to be fighting with. How big are they? How strong are they? Do they have people with them? Do they look like they know what they're doing? And immediately you assess your odds of winning that fight and you decide if you are willing to risk those odds. Now, if you're a young person in here this morning, I'll let you in on a lesson I learned the hard way. No one ever wins fights like that. You don't look tough. You don't look impressive. People either laugh at you or you scare them and they don't want to be around you. It's not a road worth walking down. For a little bit, that's what my story look like. And in these situations, you'd size up your enemy and you decide if you had any shot of winning. Well, Goliath, he walks out of the Philistine camp. And if you aren't familiar with how big six cubits and a span is, it's around nine feet, nine inches tall. This man is a literal towering giant. He's battle hardened. He's violent. He's taken many lives. He's claimed many victims. And these Israelites, they look at this man They hear his challenge, and they respond by saying, not today, buddy, not me. It says when they heard him, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were terrified. Now, the other part of this story is where David comes into it. Now, David is one of eight sons of a man named Jesse, and David and his family, they serve Israel, and they serve this king, Saul. And David's seven brothers, all seven of his brothers are a part of, of the Israelite army, and they're older, and they're large, they're impressive, they're warriors. And David, although he's described as young and handsome, he's not considered much of a fighter. Actually, David spends most of his time looking after his father's sheep. He's a shepherd by trade. But one of the other things that David does is David is a musician. And David ends up getting into service directly under King Saul, because if you don't know anything about Saul, Saul was tormented by these evil spirits, and he'd have these dark spells where he couldn't focus and basically go into like these seizure-like trances. He was tormented, but he realized that when David played music for him, he felt calm, he felt peace. And so he said, David, you're coming with me. You're going to be my personal servant, and you're going to play music. And so David's floating around the Israelite camp while all of this conflict is happening. He's hanging around, and this is where we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up in verse 24. And it says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his house, his father's house, free in Israel. So he'll give him money, he'll allow him to marry his daughter, and they'll make, basically, their family will be tax-free in Israel. And it says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And you can take that insult with you out into your daily life, you uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So riches, marry the king's daughter, families free from taxes. It says, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. 
And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Older brothers, right? You're trying to walk in the will of God, and they're still picking on you. And it says, And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And it says, And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him, Again, as before, so David's walking around camp saying, what's going on with this guy? What's happening? Why, why is no one fighting him? Is the king offering not enough? Like, what's happening? And it says, when the words that David spoke were heard, they, were repeated, them before, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. Saul sent for David. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God, and David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So David's a shepherd by trade, and you know, I think, Frequently, when we imagine shepherds back in the Bible, that we probably picture something like this guy. Like these wimpy little dudes laying around, cuddling with sheep, singing them lullabies. And it's like, we're going to let you be with the sheep because there's probably not much else you can do. So you just go take care of the sheep. And that's how we picture these shepherds a lot of the time. But David gives us a different completely different perspective of what that lifestyle looked like. Because the truth is, because sheep are so valuable, that out in the wilderness, any number of predators or even thieves might come and try to attack while these sheep are grazing. And I don't know the last time that you fought a lion or a bear with just like a stick, but you could hand me a gun and I still wouldn't feel great about my chances, honestly. But the truth is, frequently... Shepherds were their own form of warrior. They'd fight these animals out in the wilderness. They're fighting battles that most people never even heard about or knew about, putting their lives on the line daily to protect their flock. And yet many people have this backwards understanding or misinterpret them as weak. Now this is a massive parallel to Jesus. Because just as David was a shepherd, Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd. And in addition to that, many people mistake Jesus' gentle nature for weakness. People think that Jesus is weak because of his gentle nature. Now it is true that Jesus often carried himself in a meek and humble manner. It's true that Jesus was calm. He was not violently confrontational. He taught about keeping the peace and turning the other cheek. I'm sure you've heard those teachings. But just as all shepherds, Jesus had warrior-like qualities, and though, although human beings didn't really see them a lot, these warrior-like qualities were actually common knowledge, at least among demons and spiritual dark forces. In the book of Mark, 
Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man, and the demons cry out to Jesus when they see him coming, and they say, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? I'll just say this. If the baddest dude in the room starts trembling in fear when some ordinary guy walks in, and the bad dude says, listen, man, I don't want any trouble. I'll do whatever you want. Just don't kill me. I'm going to assume that that bad guy knows something about the ordinary dude that I don't know. See, the demons even testify to us. It says the demons tremble at even the mention of the name of this Jesus. Now, I know the world is very dark and it can feel hopeless sometimes, but if you ever feel like you're not fully grasping the power of the one who fights for you, if nothing else, let the demons testify to you. This seemingly meek and ordinary shepherd, well, he has a secret. There is more to him than meets the eye, as it is with David. And so David's story continues. It says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And so basically think about you putting on like your dad's clothes when you were a kid. Like you can't walk, it's too big, it's too heavy. It says, then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Said, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. He hated him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Says, and the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. It says, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the, the Philistine on his forehead. It says, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sheraim as far as Gath and Ekron, which means their dead bodies were strewn along the roads all the way to the cities where they fled. 
It says, And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now that's a story, right? And I've heard this passage preached a lot of ways, and in the traditional way that I've heard this passage preached, almost always casts us, you and I, in the role of David. And ends up casting whatever problem we're currently facing in our life, whether it's debt, relationship problems, a struggle with temptation, depression, anxiety, I mean, you name it, whatever your giant is. And if we just have enough faith, like David, if we have enough faith, God will give us the power to slay our giants and stand in victory. That's why I usually hear it preached. But you see, there's one major problem with approaching this story that way. And the problem with this approach is that it makes us the hero and it makes the outcome of our situations dependent on the amount of faith that you have. And this is extremely dangerous and harmful because the truth is you can't control the circumstances of your life with your faith. I'm believing for a better job. That's great, as long as you understand that a better job isn't guaranteed to you. I'm believing that God has my future spouse on the way for me. That's great, as long as you're aware that getting married isn't guaranteed. I'm believing for miraculous healing. That's amazing, and that does happen just as long as you're aware that miraculous healing isn't guaranteed. And listen, this isn't meant to crush your dreams. By all means, continue to bring your cares and desires and plans before the Lord, but you see, if I stand up here and preach at you that whatever giant in your life can be defeated as long as you have a few stones of faith in your bag, well, if things don't go the way you wanted, and you come back to me and you say, man, what happened? Why didn't God answer my prayer? Well, if we preach that way, then the, the only answer I'll be able to give you is you didn't have enough faith. The thing that you wanted so badly to happen, it didn't happen because you didn't believe enough. And if you think people don't hear those exact words from Christians and even church leaders, man, it happens all the time. And listen, if your prayer was just to hit the lottery and that didn't happen, you know, you can probably swallow that pill easily enough. But what if your prayer is for your mom to be healed of cancer and that didn't happen. Is God that cruel? Is God that cruel that in the weakest emotional and spiritual moments of our life, when our faith is wavering and we're struggling because of unimaginably difficult circumstances, that God looked at your shaky faith and said, uh-uh, if you had just believed more. No, you see, I'm not buying that. Because the truth is, you having enough faith stones in your bag to slay the giants in your life, that is not at all what this passage is about. I'll borrow the words of a pastor I greatly admire named Matt Chandler from one of the most impactful messages I've ever heard. Anyone speak, you're not David. You're not. You're not the hero. Now, we do have a role in this story, but we aren't the ones slinging stones and defeating giants. You know who we are? And this might feel a little bit like in middle school where like you'd read those 
plays out loud in class and everyone would have a part and you'd have a part that you really wanted but then you'd end up being like the old guy stirring soup in the corner and you had like one line the whole play and you're like, it's not exciting. This might feel a little bit like that because you see, we aren't David. You know who we are? We're the trembling Israelites back at camp. And the truth is, Goliath, Goliath isn't your difficult life circumstances. No, Goliath is your sin. Goliath is every mistake you've ever made, every regret you've ever had, every moment of weakness that has plagued your existence, all the things that you've been helpless to overcome, all the things that have kept you separated from God. That's Goliath. And Jesus, Jesus is our David. And you see, the same way, Young David went toe-to-toe in the valley of Elah with the towering giant Goliath. Our Savior, Jesus, went toe-to-toe with the towering giant Sin. And just as David returned to the Israelite army holding the head of their enemy, our Savior walked out of that tomb three days later holding the, the head of our sin and shame. You see, it's over. And maybe when I read that, you felt like it was overkill, like, David... Why the beheading? Isn't that, a little, isn't that a little gruesome? I mean, this is a children's story, after all, isn't it? But is it? I mean, we treat it like it is, but in reality, I think it's actually this massive foreshadowing of the greatest story ever told. And you see, David cut off the head of the giant and walked back into the Israelite camp, holding it up for everyone to see because he wanted to leave no doubt in their mind. It is finished. Does that sound familiar to you? You see, if you're a follower of Jesus in this place, man, I I just want to reiterate a very powerful and significant truth to you that I fear some of us may have forgotten. And the truth is, you're no longer in your sin. You're not in it, and you're not of it. It doesn't fit you. It doesn't control you. It doesn't rule over your life. And so you don't have to spend the rest of your days obsessing over all of your shortcomings and your failures and your wickedness and your wanderings because you've been set free to obsess over your Savior. And you know why we forget that? You know why that loses its fire, it loses its flavor in our life? Well, it's because the same way that Goliath taunted and mocked the Israelites, your old self tries to fight back for their position and take back control of your heart. You see, Goliath called out, send me a man. Send me someone so I can fight them and I can stain the ground with their blood and I can feed their body to the birds. You will never beat me. You will never be rid of me. I will be the theme of your life for the rest of your life. And in the same way, I know that your sin calls out to you because it calls out to me too. And it says the blood of Jesus might be enough for some, but it will never be enough to cover you. You will never be free from this. You will never be rid of me. I own you and I will always own you. You'll never break these chains. Man, those words and those voices have driven me to my knees in despair more times than I could probably ever count. Shaking, trembling, helpless, hopeless, lost. But you see, then from the ranks, looking just like one of us, our Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, stepped out from the crowd and stepped to the front line and on the cross, Jesus accomplished for us 
what we never could have accomplished ourselves. And did you hear how the Israelites responded when they saw the giant fall? They shouted, and then they ran forward in victory. Do you remember when that was you? You remember when you couldn't stop shouting and you couldn't stop celebrating? Don't you know that that's meant to be the picture of the entire Christian life? And it's just like, like when did we stop shouting, you know? When did it turn from, no matter what happens for the rest of my life, I have something to celebrate and I have something to be excited about because it's finished, it's over. God is good. When did it turn from that to, man, if I just had this one thing or this one person, I'd be happy. If God just answered this one prayer the way that I wanted, like that would be enough. When did we go from, like, you don't know what Jesus has brought me through. Like, how can I be quiet about this? How can I ever be silent? When did we go from that to, man, you, you, you don't know what I've done. Who am I to speak up? Since when do you have to bat a thousand in order to be ecstatic and overwhelmed at what your Savior has accomplished? I just tell you this, if you have to bat a thousand, if you have to be a good person in order to be excited about Jesus and speak about him, then I have to quit my job right now along with every other person who works in ministry. You see, we don't shout in victory because we're good. We shout in victory because Jesus is good. And you see, if I have to wait until I'm good to shout in victory, I am never going to shout in this life because I'm never going to be good. But if I can shout in victory when Jesus is good, then I always have a reason to shout because he's always good. I don't know if you guys caught it, but the Israelite army didn't magically turn into superheroes the second David cut Goliath's head off. They were still weak. They still weren't enough. But they had just watched their greatest enemy fall and something in that like changed their outlook. And so even though they weren't heroes, they charged forward. But don't you get it? Like I'm, I'm divorced. I, I still struggle with lust. I have anxiety. I still have moments when my faith is weak. I still get envious. I struggle to keep God first. Like I don't pray enough. I'm just not a good person. Man, some of you guys are still on a battlefield fighting against a dead giant. And he is getting the best of you. What if instead you just testified in the middle of your mess instead of waiting for everything to be okay? Like, don't you know there is never going to come a day in this life when everything is going to be okay? There's always going to be another giant. There's always going to be some voice screaming at you that this Jesus stuff isn't enough. And we're still back trembling at camp when we're supposed to be shouting and running forward in victory, like plundering the enemy camp, like the dead bodies of our self-hate and our, our guilt and our shame just like strewn all along the roads like the Philistine army. Like how long can we stay silent about this? The head of sin and death and hell have been cut off where they stand. Our Savior's won. That's bigger than anything we could ever face in this life. Now, does that mean that you just have to suck it up and accept all the current giants in your life? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that you have to stop trying to control everything. Whether it's with your willpower or your faith or even with your prayers, like you can't control everything. 
Do you remember when you first got saved? Like when you were absolutely on fire? Do you remember how all the giants in your life seemed to just fall at once? I mean, I bet the first week you were saved was probably the week that you sinned the least in your entire life. And it wasn't because you decided to be extra obedient. I bet the first week you were saved, most of your circumstances, job, relationship status, health status, money status, I bet none of those things changed. But I bet for the first week you were saved that they had the least amount of control over you than they had ever had in your life. Now let me ask you, was that because you defeated those giants and rendered them powerless with your stones of faith? Absolutely not. It's because for that first week you were saved, you couldn't take your eyes off of Jesus. Right? You were obsessed. Do you remember that? You didn't have any time to obsess over your sin because you were too busy obsessing over your Savior. You didn't have time to obsess over the negative circumstances in your life because you were too busy obsessing over how good God is. What if the key to all of this isn't standing on the battlefield with our mess trying to like fight and win that? What if the key is just setting our eyes on the one who stepped to the front lines for us and finished the fight? Man, a lot of you guys know, a lot of you know that my mom passed away of pancreatic cancer in 2023. I've talked about this before. And that battle was so much more hers than it was mine. But the truth is, aside from my sin, that is the biggest giant I've ever stood up in front of in my entire life. And what's crazy, our entire family, including my mom, we hit our knees every day and we started praying and we started slinging stones of faith at that giant for almost five years. And we even almost thought we had him for a second. But when the cancer came back and it was worse than it ever was, something changed inside of my mom. And I didn't realize it at the moment, but as I look back now, I realize it. And what changed is in hers, she stopped slinging stones. And she just let Jesus step to the front lines for her. And she used to always say, my cup runneth over. That was like her life motto. She'd say it all the time, my cup runneth over. And if I'm being honest, I always thought like she was kind of cheesy for it. Like why runneth, mom? Like why KJV? Can we just like... But I realize now that when she said that, when she said, my cup runneth over, it's because she was making the decision to obsess over Jesus over anything else. You see, no matter what happens, my cup runneth over. Come hell or high water, my cup runneth over. Even if I lose my life, my cup runneth over. A couple of nights, a couple of nights before she passed away, her pastor came and visited at our house. And he's a great guy. But he hadn't seen her in those last stages, and I could tell it rattled him a little bit. She's not coherent. She could barely even speak. But he asked how she was doing. And even though she could barely speak, even though she barely could even remember our names at that point, you know what she said to him? Cup runneth over and as I wrote this message about this shepherd boy and how he so strongly parallels our good shepherd, Jesus, I realized that the line, my cup runneth over, 
comes from the most popular psalm in the Bible, which is both about a shepherd and written by David. And God reminded me how good he is and how there are no coincidences. And the psalm says this, and I'm going to read it in the KJV. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I wonder when, if David wrote this, if he was thinking about the valley of Elah running towards that giant when he was writing about the valley of the shadow of death. And I, I don't know what you're going through. I wouldn't even pretend to know the weight of whatever it is that you're going through in your life. But I know the power that setting our eyes on our Savior has. And I know that in the darkest valleys and standing before the greatest giants, that letting Jesus step to the front lines for us and letting him rule in our lives in those moments, even when things don't go the way we want them to. That man, setting our eyes on Jesus delivers a peace that literally doesn't make sense and it delivers a hope that doesn't let go and it delivers a joy that can't be found anywhere else in this world. You know, it is undoubtedly a miracle when someone is miraculously healed of cancer. That is obviously a miracle. That's obviously amazing. And I continue to pray for that and the people in my life who are currently battling that giant. But for me, but for me, it's just as big of a miracle, if not a bigger miracle, when someone who hasn't been healed and someone who has nothing left can continue saying, my cup runneth over, all the way up until the moment Jesus brings them home and heals them personally. So what's your giant? What's your giant and how long are you going to continue getting pummeled by them on the battlefield before you surrender that fight to Jesus? He is the good shepherd. He is our David. He is our savior and he can handle all the battles that we can't. And he is ready to step to the front lines for you. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. We're going to sing one more song. We're going to take communion. And I just, man, I, I just want to treat communion today. I just, I want it to look like the Israelite camp as David walked back holding the giant's head in victory. As we celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross, I don't know what it is that you're walking through in your life right now. You might be in the darkest, heaviest moment of your life, but for this moment, I just want to take this opportunity during communion to just set our eyes on our Savior, to celebrate what he has done, not try to commit to do this better or, or be better or do this, but just for this moment. I just want to see you in your goodness, God. I just want to celebrate you for who you are. And the song we're going to sing is called Defender. And one of the lines in it says, all I did was praise. All I did was worship. All I did was bow down. All I did was stay still. You did everything else, Jesus. I my salvation was not a cooperative effort. It was all you. You went out. You slayed the giant. And all I did was yell in celebration and worship you. Let's pray, and then we can take communion.
Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being our David. I've dealt with pride over the course of my life, and I know that there are still moments when I want to be the hero of my own life. And I want to be able to do something, and I want to be able to fix things, and I want to be able to be good enough. But Lord, if I'm being honest, nothing good has ever come from those efforts. The greatest moments of my life have always been when I threw my hands up and surrendered the fight to you. You showed up time and time again like you always do. God, I pray for everyone in this place. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what their giants are. But I know that you know. And I know that you've seen them. And I know that you hung on a cross so that they could experience freedom from not just our sin and shame and the guilt, but all the battles that we experience in this life. That you can deliver the peace, grace, and mercy that only you can. I pray that your spirit rests here in this room with us and allows us to feel that feel the weight of what you've accomplished for us. You are a hero, you are our savior, and we just trust you and worship you in your name alone, Jesus.